0: Well, again, good morning, Anthem Church. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Genesis chapter 34. They'll make sure we got the lights on in here. So Genesis 34, we're going to continue our study. Um, That's where we've been for a while now. And so, um, and if you don't have a Bible, we just got a new shipment of them in. So if you want one, just swing by kind of the info central out by the coffee bar. We'll hook you up. Um, And so, yeah. So Genesis 34, and we're going to look at the story that involves Jacob's daughter, uh, Dinah. And so as you guys are opening up there, just by way of like survey, how many of you could say by show of hands, you're familiar with this story, where if I called on you, you could say, I know what Genesis 34 is about. How many of you by show of hands? Go ahead. Don't be shy. You know your Bible. I'm going to cough, Keaton. (laughs) How many? Okay. So the rest of you, this might be a little bit new. That's fine. But it is, honestly, in Scripture, it is incredibly, like, gripping story. And what I want you to do is not read ahead. Because if you're reading ahead, you're not going to be listening to what I'm trying to tell you. And so we need to come to an agreement. And so if you could just repeat after me, I promise... some, some, hold on, we're missing a few people. I promise promise. to not read ahead. ahead. Thank you, Anthem Church. Okay, so Genesis 34. So Dinah, this is, uh, I'm going to read in verse 1. It says this, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, who she born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Okay, stop there. No reading ahead. So what we understand to this point, Dinah has 11 brothers. Can you imagine what it would be like growing up in that house with 11 brothers? They're probably wanting to wrestle with her, catch frogs, like go hunting. And here they are. They just, we saw that they left Laban in that land and they are just now, they met Esau And now they're relocating next to this town, Shechem. And so they're just right next to this new town. And finally, someone other than her family exists. And so we see right away that she wants to go out and see the women of the land. Understandable, right? And so she's going to go make some friends. While it's understandable, it's a terrible idea. Here's why. We've been studying Genesis, and we've seen on three separate instances where even married women, when they go to a new location, and this would have been her grandma and her great-grandma, when they went to a new location, the rulers in that area took notice of them, brought them into their harem of wives, and thanked the Lord that nothing bad happened before Abraham and Isaac could get their wives back. But to go for a walk as a woman... Bad idea, given the context, because, again, it's the Wild West. There is no fear of God. And so sinful people are doing sinful things. Going to keep reading, verse 2. We're stopping in 4, okay? And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah. Or in your translation might say, he became infatuated with Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar and said, get me this girl for my wife. Okay, stop there. Understand what happened is this prince, again, whom the city is named after, perhaps he's never been denied anything in his life. Later, we're going to see he's, he's the first in his father's household. He sees this woman, physically forces himself upon Dinah, and he rapes her. And I want to talk about Dinah first. I can't, what was she feeling? Here she just wanted to go see some women in the land, and now she finds herself in this situation where she has been violated. I don't know if she's angry, she's mad, broken, all of those at the same time. I imagine some of the thought is like, now am I going to conceive and give birth to a child, which would be this painful reminder on a daily basis? And unfortunately, some of you don't have to know how Dinah felt. Like, you, you don't have to wonder. You personally know how she felt. Statistically speaking, it's around 18% of women in the U.S. have experienced rape. The statistic only increases on college campus, whereas as high as one in four Women will be victims of, of sexual assault. I'm a dad to four daughters. I don't like what that means statistically. It makes me angry, frustrated, primarily angry, to just think about sending my daughters into a world like that. And if you've been a victim of rape or molestation, I am I'm sorry. I I don't know what else to say other than I am truly sorry for the evil that has been done upon you. That is not okay. Men are to use their strength to protect women, not to prey on them. God made men strong for a reason, and they're supposed to use that strength to protect women. But instead, we see here that he doesn't protect her. He just preys upon her. And men, I, I just want you to begin to understand perhaps some of the ignorance that we feel Around this topic, I don't think we fully comprehend how vulnerable women will feel often. In fact, it was this past week talking about it with some of our staff gals that made me realize I'm pretty ignorant to the topic. Let me help you understand our ignorance, men. Men, here's a survey by show of hands. How many of you carry a can of like mace on your car keys? Or with you when you go out for like a run or something. Men, how many of you, by show of hands, carry mace with you? I see no hands. Women, same question. How many of you have mace to protect yourself? Do you understand the level of vulnerability that is even just displayed by that simple question? We don't have to think about being assaulted or raped. But women, that is something that is that is there and it's understandable. It was Years ago, thousands of years ago, that was a problem. And even today, it is still very much a problem. And I realize my ignorance in this, and and every year, how this comes out, and I think how we hurt our Christian sisters in this. We talk about missions trips, going overseas, and we send college teams. And every year, the girls outnumber the guys when it comes to those applicants, and it seems like we're scrambling. And you talk to guys, And again, I was one of those at one time. It's like, I just don't know if that works for my plans. And so what we're saying in that is we're willing to let our sisters in Christ travel to a foreign country by themselves without men there to use their strength to protect them. And I'm not saying that it ought to be a primary motivator that we do missions to protect our sisters, but it can be a motivator, can it not, that we would want to think, about our, our, our sisters in Christ and how to protect them. And just so you understand, apart from even just that push there, by God's grace, we had 50 students show interest in overseas missions this summer, and 20 of them were guys. And so I'm excited about the trajectory that we're heading, but I want to see those men, I want to encourage us to be the kind of men that practice some level of chivalry and would be willing to walk a woman to their car when it's dark outside that we would be the kind of men that would do those sorts of things. And, and women, I understand this, one of our staff gals who will go unnamed, Hannah, um, was saying, <laughs> it's, there's been times where it's hard to let a guy do that. Because what, am I saying that I'm weaker in that moment? It, 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 is, what am I communicating? I would just say, women, would you please let the men, would you please let them flex that strength? Like, please let them do that. And here's the thing, not for your sake, necessarily, but for the guys that are watching that would want to use their strength in a wrong way, I would want our men flexing their strength in a right way and showing what that ought to look like. Do you understand? I think it's helpful for those guys out there to say, oh, you're actually going to protect these gals. You actually care. And so, women, you please have to give us the opportunity to do those things But in our narrative, we don't see a a guy use his strength to protect, but rather he preys upon her, and it begs the question, why? Why did he do it? Verse 3 tells us his motivation. He says that he has this soul longing or infatuation, this intense, short-lived passion. That's what he's feeling. And he thinks, oh, I love her. No, you, you lust after her. See, lust looks to something or someone for what it can get. Love looks for something or, or someone, and it says, what can I give? Lust consumes, love constructs. And so lust is, it's about me. And check him; it's what he's thinking. He doesn't know her last name. He doesn't know her, her dreams or her desires, her interests. He doesn't know anything about her, only what he's seen. So he can't love. He's lusting after her. Zach, if you could help me with my illustration. So Zach's going to bring... Over this ladder, and you look at the narrative, and you're like, "Man, he goes from like looking at her uh, to to raping." And it seems, uh, thank you, buddy. Let's see if I can do this. Thank you. Okay, seems solid, right? You, some of you have seen this illustration before. Oh. So no one reaches the top rung of a ladder instantaneously right you you step up and even in this narrative i think we're going to see clues where it's like he didn't just start with rape like no one sets out no one goes from like a really good person to being like a mafia drug dealer lord overnight there's usually a progression and so same thing here we see some clues in the text that this young man who this city is named after who's the head of his family Perhaps never been denied anything. Like he sees her and then there he begins to act on it. And says, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to physically grab her. And then he brings her in and he, so he goes, goes, goes. And this is oftentimes, sorry, I'm going to freak people out. I'll get off the ladder here in a second, but work with me. Like we, we climb this ladder and it, we don't feel our sin oftentimes until we fall off like the 10th rung of the ladder and then you hit the ground and you're like, how did I get to this spot of looking at this or doing this thing? Or you see this like in adultery cases, like people, I don't know how that I began to sleep with my receptionist. There's a progression that took place. It was a little thing that you weren't working on your marriage at home and then you started to confide in somebody emotionally and then you confided in them physically and boom, you're off the 10th rung, Right? Sin is like this. It's this progression, and he doesn't let it go in check. It starts with infatuation, this lust in his heart, shows no self-control, the sin. And and so when you're saying this, you might say, there's a flaw in your illustration. Are you saying that not all sin is equal? And I want to be very clear, yes and no, okay? Yes and no. Is all sin equal and deserving of God's justice? Meaning, anywhere on the ladder does, does God's justice come in and we deserve hell. Absolutely. All sin is equal in the sense that any wrong on this ladder is missing the mark for what God would have. But not all sin is equal in terms of severity or damage it causes between us and others or us and God. Meaning, murdering someone is far more severe than being angry with them. And so, is all sin equal in terms of penalty? Yes. In terms of forgivability? Yes. But in terms of actual severity? No. There's difference and even Jesus would say to Pilate, "The one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin." And so not all sin and he's referring to, I believe Judas in that point where he's like, "Man, of course you don't know me, but Judas has walked with me for 3 years and so he's going to be judged a little more strict." And so All sin is equal that we deserve to be punished, but not equal in in damage. And so climbing the rungs of this ladder, that's where Shechem is at, and he is on the top rung. Back to the narrative, verse 5. Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were with his livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. Okay, so you can miss the mark by missing the target entirely. That's Shechem, no reading ahead, by the way. Or you can miss the mark by like never shooting your arrow. That's another good way to miss the mark. And here's Jacob, like he does nothing. He remains silent. By the way, what we're gonna see in the narrative, his daughter is still being held captive, verse 26. So not only was she raped, you can look ahead at that to confirm that, right? Not only was she physically assaulted, raped, but she is still being held captive in Shechem's house. Jacob learns about this of his daughter and does nothing. Now, there ought to be dads welling up in you a righteous anger. I haven't seen the movie, but Liam Neeson or whatever, like I've developed a special set of skills. I'm going to use them heard one pastor say, you know, this is of guys like, not even bad guys, but guys who just come around the house. It was just this clear warning that I've lived a happy and full life and I'm content spending the rest of it in jail. Like, I will protect my family. I will protect my daughters and I will will rightly not let harm come their way. And so there's this right emotion, but Jacob doesn't display that here. And I would just say, dads, you know, it's novel to talk about cleaning your gun, you know, with your daughters. I don't really believe that's necessary if you do a good job of displaying for them what a godly man looks like. Then they have no reason to go with that guy and ride off on the motorcycle and go do that. If you've shown them what they deserve and communicated value and affirmation to them, there's no need to intimidate these suitors because your daughters will do the work for you in intimidating them. And so if we would... And again, it's easy to think, honestly, it's easy to think of dying for my daughters, dying for my wife, but dying daily is a harder thing. Dying once is a one-time instant, taking a bullet. But dying yourself and your hobbies and your desires so that you can live for them, that is true, like you need Jesus to be able to do that. And that's not just for the married men out there with daughters, or I'm saying, single guys too, there ought to be these words of encouragement for our sisters. Proverbs 31 talks about this this woman who's awesome, wife of noble character who can find. She's worth far more than rubies. But he said, this woman who fears the Lord is to be greatly praised. Give her the reward she deserves. And so, men, what I'm saying in Anthem, I don't want it to take tragedy for us to communicate the right things towards the women in our church in the women in our lives. It need not take tragedy to, to show how we truly feel. Jacob, though, he doesn't do anything. And I don't know what's at the root of this other than he just fearful. And so he lets that paralyze him. And we see the narrative continue. It's one thing to rape, terrible. But now the father and the rapist are going to come and speak with Jacob. The audacity, verse 6. Meanwhile, Shechem's father, Hamar, came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field and when they heard about the incident they were deeply grieved and angry for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter and such a thing should not have been done I'll stop there finally a right response it says in verse what is 7 they are deeply grieved and angry such a thing should not have been done not only rape but, but kidnap this is this is wrong and i and i think of romans new testament where he says, Romans 12, 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And so there should be, there ought to be within us, Christian, a hatred towards that which is opposed to God. And so there should be a hatred. Sorry about that. I think of early on, I didn't know what it looked like to hate sin, but thankfully I had a roommate that did. We went to the movies. When you're poor, like post-college, finding $8 to go to a movie, that's a lot of money. And so you buy the ticket, you go in, and true to Hollywood, the movie got crude, and it got there like fast. We are five minutes into this movie, and uh, and it was one of those deals where it's like, I don't like this, so I'm going to look away. My buddy Dave... He just gets up and walks out, and I'm like, I guess that's what we're doing. So we get up, and, and Dave is like, I'm not gonna be entertained by the very things that Jesus died for. <laughs> I felt convicted, but I'm like, oh, I wanna hate sin. I wanna hate that. I don't wanna be entertained by that. God hates sin so much that someone had to die for it. God, and so when we hate sin, Like the sons are doing, we're sharing in God's heart when we hate what is evil, and we call it what it is. And and Jacob's sons really hate sin. Verse 8, Hamar said to Jacob's sons, now he's talking to them because Jacob's not doing anything, my son Shechem is strongly attracted to your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here. Move about and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, grant me this favor and I'll give you whatever you say. Demand on me a high compensation and gift. I'll give you whatever you ask of me. Just give me the girl to be my wife. Time out. You see... Shechem here, just responding to his urges, like, it just, I view, like, a little child throwing a temper tantrum in Walmart about a toy, like, I'll do whatever, and and he's trying to make a deal with them, again, all while Dinah is still being held captive in his house. It's like, you really love her, then why didn't you protect her? And I'll just, young ladies, by the way, if that man really cares about you, he will protect your purity. Shechem, he doesn't care about her. He's looking to what he can get. If he really cared, why didn't he apologize for the wrong that he's done? And again, you see in his thing, he's not just wanting one daughter. He wants all the daughters of Israel to marry with these men. And I just think of him up there making that case, and it, and it reminds me of, uh, of Shechem being up here on this ladder, uh, the great philosopher, uh, Johnny Cash. Uh, he said, sooner or later... God's going to cut you down. And just, he's up there, and he doesn't know what's coming. and, and, And God cannot be mocked. Galatians 6 says, you will reap what you sow. And he's just sown to the flesh. I do what I want, what I feel. And he says, I love her, to which the brothers say, okay. Verse 15, only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you, being Circumcised time out, no reading ahead. Now, this covenant of circumcision was given to Abraham and his descendants to identify that they were God's chosen people. In short, it's the removal of skin from the male reproductive organ. Got it? Don't Google it later, okay? Just take my word. So, usually, it's done in babies, fairly painful or painless. Um, I don't know. It's done so early that that that's kind of the deal. But here's the thing about this sign. No one is going to steal this sign from God's people, right? Like this is unique to them. There's no reason to to do this apart from the Lord giving them this sign and saying, this is my covenant with you. And so nobody's going to steal this sign. It's unique to them, and God has given it to them. But here is Shechem, and the men, they are full grown. This is primitive times. There's no anesthetic. There's crude tools. And I would imagine that it would be incredibly painful for them to do this. But Simeon and Levi, these guys are leading out, they're saying, oh, you want to run with us? You've got to identify with us. Get circumcised. That's a hard sell. However, in verse 18, the words seemed good to Hamar and his son Shechem. And the young man did not delay doing this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most important in all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem went to the gate of the city and spoke to the men there. These men are peaceful towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it, for indeed the region is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this condition, just one condition, if all of our men get circumcised as they are. See the motivation. Verse 23, won't their livestock, their possessions, and all their animals become ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will live with us. Time out. No reading that, please. We learn something about these people. They compromise justice. Here is the rapist and his father that he's kidnapped, but yet they compromise justice because they don't punish Shechem. They don't do anything. Here is a guilty person right before them in the city gate, and they compromise justice. And moreover, they are motivated by Greed. Material gain, it says in verse 23, oh, we can get their livestock, their possession, so much so that they would mutilate their flesh as the opportunity to get more stuff. That is the group of people, this wicked people in the land that we're talking about. And so we see in verse 24, all the able-bodied men listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and all the able-bodied men were circumcised. Here they go, climbing the ladder of sin as well. And on the third day, while they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city, and killed every male. They killed Hamar son, and his son Shechem with their swords. They took Dinah from Shechem's house and went away. And Jacob's other sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their cattle, donkeys, and whatever uh, was in the city and in the field, and they captured all their possessions, children, and wives, and plundered everything in their houses. We're going to stop there. Those with a high justice bent like myself, some of this just gets your hair standing up, you're like, yes. Two brothers... And I don't know if this is like where the phrase like they went to town came from, but they just went to town, (laughs) like just killing everybody. And you can imagine these men are laid up in pain. They they knew exactly what they were asking when they said, why don't you go ahead and get circumcised? And so they were in so much pain and these two guys go around with a sword, kill everybody, grab their sister and walk out. It's the other sons that come along afterwards and plunder and take everything. Everybody's dead, so we'll just take everything for ourselves. But these guys just, they wanted somebody to pay. What was Shechem's problem, though? The rapist? He felt compulsion and he just acted in accordance to his flesh. Those with the high justice bent, hold on here. Because Simeon and Levi, they share the same problem as Shechem. Now, it's a better kind of impulse, but it's the same root problem. They acted in accordance to their flesh, what they felt. In other words, the vengeance, killing every male, I get it that they weren't, they were a little greedy, they should have done something, but the vengeance far exceeded equitable retribution against the guilty party, Shechem. They went a little far. Were they right to be upset? Absolutely. They were right to be deeply grieved and angry, but that approach, wrong. They got a a bullseye, but just on the wrong target. It's like, oh, or you scored a basket. It was just for the other team. It's like, you were close, but that was, and how do we know? How do we know they missed the mark? Later on in Genesis 49, I don't know if we have this slide or not, but Genesis 49, when all the other brothers are getting blessings, this is what happens in Genesis forty nine five through seven. Simeon and Levi are brothers. This is uh, this is what they got instead of a blessing. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel, oh, or my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their wilfulness they hamstrung oxen. Verse seven of Genesis forty nine. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Simeon and Levi might have had a better root motivation than Shechem, but they're still given to the flesh. They didn't consult God and say, God, what do you want me to do? They're saying, we're angry, we're mad, and rightfully so, so we're going to go kill everybody. The same sort of impulse that was in Shechem to do what they felt like, they have a better feeling, but it's still unchecked. It's still acting in accordance to what their flesh felt like. And so it's the same kind of bad root motivation. And I would just say to those, some of you, you have that discernment. You see sin, and you're bothered by it. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Some of you are really good at being able to identify people's sins, where they're going wrong. And I I know there's others that are kind of on the other end of of the more merciful side of things, where it's like, man, I'm just going to assume the best. But some of you rightfully can discern and see those things. That's not a bad thing, but it comes with a warning from Jesus. He's saying, you're right to want to go get the speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye, but first remove the plank out of your own eye. It's not wrong to hate sin. You just have to be willing to hate your own sin as well. Does that make sense? And so it's a a good thing to want to have justice and righteousness, but make sure that, that you also hate your own sin as well. And I just think it's a good warning for those that see it in other people or those that say, well, I just have to say it. I'm I, I just got to call it how I see it. I have to do something no one else will. Again, I think that's just going under the ladder of like how you see it and you're climbing on up. But are we consulting God? Do we have a level of mercy and understanding that would come from the Lord? And so, again, these guys get cursed because of their anger, There are some good things there in their motivation, but they're still given to the flesh, just like Shechem. And then we see Jacob in verse 30 said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. For uh, we are few in number and they will unite against... (laughs) He just knows this is going to happen, right? For we are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, should they have treated our sister like a prostitute? Jacob, he doesn't like making trouble, and I get that. But Jacob, what are you going to do when trouble comes to you? I get that you don't want to make trouble, but trouble found its way to you. Ultimately, no one responds rightly in the story. Jacob doesn't do anything. Simeon and Levi do the wrong thing. Shechem does the wrong thing. If you're looking for the right person in the story, you're not going to find it. They're all given to the flesh. And Romans 8, verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so this whole thing, I want you to understand the context as we kind of wrap this up. Likely the author of this is Moses. And he is writing this for now the nation of Israel, Israel, who would have taken like this whole, these sons would go on to have children and they would just be known as, tribes of people. And they are coming out of Exodus. And I believe he is writing these stories, reminding them of Sodom and Gomorrah, reminding them of Dinah. And what he is reminding them as he pens Genesis, is he's telling the nation of Israel, saying, you need to be set apart. God is going to give us this land and we need to not be like the people of the land who are wicked, who do what their flesh desire, which ultimately leads to destruction what he's saying is a reminder with these stories is saying we got to follow God. God's call for his people is to be set apart, not climbing the ladders of sin, but rather being set apart. And so it would serve as a reminder for the nation of Israel as they would hear these stories like this out of Genesis 34. And I honestly think anthem what an opportunity we have in our culture to be set apart. Man So many times people just want to do what they feel like no matter what the cost is. And they constantly want to try and find their own way to happiness, be it through relationships, money, careers, whatever it is, and constantly climbing this and finding, oh, it always leads to falling off and feeling broken and hurt. And perhaps you've done this where you've tried over and over again saying, well, I'll do this to make me happy. And without fail, every time, We come, boom, snap right back. And I believe it's God's grace to not let us get far from him. And what he would say is if you're looking for an example to follow, you got to keep flipping to the right where you find Jesus, who said, not my will be done, but God, your will be done. And for those that invite Jesus into our lives, and God comes to live inside of us, he'd say that manifests itself in ways of love, joy, peace is in there patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of which we don't see in this narrative, but it's ultimately found when Jesus comes to live within us. And how that happens is acknowledging that we are broken, that our ways lead to destruction, and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the way, asking him to forgive us of our sins. And so the narrative was written for Israel to be set apart, I think for us all the more to be set apart as God's people that have first experienced the love from God, that that would overflow and manifest itself in ways that that are not natural but supernatural that come from God. Because it's natural to want to give somebody what they deserved. It's supernatural to die in their place. That is what God would have for his people that have accepted the supernatural love of God through Jesus. And so we're going to have an opportunity to reflect that with communion, which is God's way of saying, do this in remembrance of my body broken, my blood shed. But before we do communion, you're going to actually get to hear a testimony from another student that has surrendered their life to Jesus. And so I'm going to bring Ruth up and she's going to share her testimony and then I'll give us some instructions before uh, she gets baptized. So... This is Ruth. Hi, guys.
1: Hello. Hi, my name is Ruth. Um, So I was baptized as a baby. I was raised by parents who raised me and my siblings to know and love Jesus from the beginning. Um, And so from a really young age, I just knew that I was a sinner and that I needed Jesus to have a right relationship with God. Um, because my sin deserved punishment, and that was hell, and so I knew that um, I needed a relationship with Jesus, and so at a really young age, I accepted Christ, and all throughout my childhood um, was just learning what that looked like to have a relationship with him and grow closer to God Um, and going to church and having devotions with my family and going to summer camp, and so all throughout elementary school, life was relatively easy, Um, nothing too hard or challenging, but Um, At the end of seventh grade, my parents told my siblings and I that we were getting ready to move to Columbia, Missouri, and that was really hard for me. The move was really hard, Um, just figuring out what it looked like to make new friends, leave the home that I had known, and come to a new place and get into a new school um, and a new um, town. And so that was hard. And through that, just learning to um, trust God and know that he has a plan and that his plan is good um, and that he is good at the end of the day. And so um, after moving here, still continued to go back to church camp in Iowa. Um, And that was a super important place for me um, in my walk with God. And I think there is where I really learned what it looked like to have my own personal relationship with God and just really um, make my faith my own and desire to have that personal relationship and have um, quiet time on my own and just be in the word. Um, And so as high school started to come to a close, Um, people are asking, where do you want to go to school? What do you want to study? And I didn't know. And so that question was really frustrating for me. Um, and so I started to pray about it and just think about what it would look like after high school for me and, um, what my options were. And, um, at some point my mom threw out the idea that I could spend some time in Swaziland, Africa, um, with my aunt, who's a full-time missionary there. And so that's what I decided to go with. And so before I knew it, um, we're making plans for that and fundraising, um, and getting ready to spend a semester over there doing ministry alongside my aunt um, for four months. And so there were things about that that were really hard, um, but I also got to see a lot of really cool things, and God worked in incredible ways. Um, And so coming back from Africa, started college here, um, got involved in Salt Company, and started coming to Anthem. And since coming to Anthem, have just seen baptisms done over and over and over again and just seen the passion behind it, and because of that, just started to question what it looked like that I was baptized as a baby, and what that means for me um, here, and going forward, and so ultimately, after lots of praying about it, and talking with my parents, and other people about it, have just decided that I want to stand up here in front of the church today, um, professing my faith, and this water isn't what saves me, but it is a symbol um, that my sin has been put to death with Jesus on the cross, and that I am raised to new life with him, and I am a new creation because of him.
0: Yeah. I'll try and not get emotional, but I, guys, I want my daughters to have a story like that, where they grew up in a godly home and got to hear and respond to the gospel at a young age, and walk in service to him. Like, and again, I I think we wrongly, like, oh, that's a boring testimony. It's like, that's the best testimony. Like, that's what I want for my kids, and to see that God's grace in her life, uh, Ruth, and so it's just awesome. So we're gonna celebrate with her. The band's gonna play. We're gonna have a moment, dunk her in immersion, again, because the sign that Jesus gave and how we see that played out through Acts It's our strong conviction that people will repent, believe. And they got baptized, professing that their 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 trust is in Jesus's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so that's what you're professing today, that your trust is in Jesus. And so Ruth is going to get to display that through baptism. And then you guys get to display that through communion. And so you can make your way after she gets baptized to one of the communion tables, break off a piece of bread, again, recognizing that it's Jesus's body broken and dipping it in the cup his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so these are the ordinances given to the church to celebrate giving glory to God. And so again, we're gonna do that. When she comes on the water, you guys can cheer and then make your way to one of the communion tables set up and you have your time reflecting that Jesus Christ um, is your Lord and Savior.